Our first reading today is from Exodus chapter 24, and I shall start at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on, on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Our second reading today is from Matthew chapter 17, starting at verse 1. This is the account of the transfiguration. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up into a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if you wish. Uh, good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Emile Coué, I hope I'm saying that right, the French psychologist and pharmacist, popularized a famous mantra. Say it with me if you know it. Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. Kue encouraged his patients to repeat this to themselves 20 times a day as part of his psychoanalytical technique called optimistic autosuggestion. The idea was that positive reinforcement of optimistic belief could have genuine health benefits. Strangely enough, at a medical level, he may well have been onto something. The placebo effect is now well documented. When people believe something to be helpful, they will often show a measurable improvement. I tend to think 
that something like this lies behind many of the stories of faith healing that get told, both within and beyond Christianity. People believe that prayer for healing works, and so at least to some extent it does. I mean, I've never seen someone grow an arm back after being prayed for, but I can understand how people might show measurable improvement in other, perhaps less tangible ways after being prayed for. Interestingly, Kue's trick, as he called it, was consistent with the idea of social Darwinism, as popularized in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. This is an extension of Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection, where the biological concept of the survival of the fittest becomes a model for understanding the development of society as the in, and the individuals who live within it. Social Darwinism finds its origins with Thomas Huxley, or Darwin's bulldog, as he was sometimes known. Huxley took Darwin's theory of the origin of species and made it into a kind of philosophical model to explain human society without the need for belief in God. Huxley, the famous agnostic, almost single-handedly created the division between Christianity and evolution that comes down to us today, with many Christians still believing that it is incompatible with their faith to accept an old earth evolutionary understanding on the origin of humanity. Huxley was unwittingly aided and abetted by the then Bishop of Oxford, Samuel Wilberforce, whose famous jibe at Huxley as to whether Huxley was descended from an ape on his mother's side or his father's side, did much to create the animosity between faith and science that we still live with today. Huxley won that debate, replying to Wilberforce that he would rather be descended from an ape than to be a man who misused his great talents to suppress debate. I think that on this and on many other things, Huxley had a point. I'm one of those who thinks that evolution by natural selection is a perfectly adequate model for explaining the biological adaptation and speciation that we can observe in the natural world. And I just don't see any conflict between it and my faith in God or my understanding of the Bible. But what I don't like is the extension of evolution into evolution metaphors for societal and spiritual development. Because I simply don't think it's true that every day in every way we're getting better and better. Surely the First World War, a hundred years ago, was ample proof of the human capacity to descend into hellish madness at the drop of a hat. And the links between social Darwinism and the eugenics programs of the Third Reich are terrifying and deeply chilling. I have occasionally joked that I do wonder if the fact that I was born with no wisdom teeth might mean that I'm part of the next evolution of humanity. But it turns out that this is simply a recessive mutation that arose around 300,000 years ago. Or possibly, as some have suggested, Liz, it's simply indicative of the fact that I have no corresponding wisdom. So with all of this in mind, what on earth is going on at the Transfiguration? What 
strange new humanity is coming into being here. Our story, told for us today by Matthew, and drawing on a similar story from Mark's Gospel, describes Jesus and three of his disciples going up a mountain to have a very strange experience indeed. Listen to Matthew's words again. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. As I said, what on earth is going on here? There are a number of clues in the text that uh, we need to pay attention to if we're going to get to grips with what Matthew is trying to do in this story. And the first thing to realize is that this description of Jesus, transfigured, face shining, light sun, clothes dazzling white, this description of Jesus is not unique in the Bible. Rather, it is drawing on a long tradition, stretching back into ancient Judaism, of visions of God in human form, and also of encounters between humans and the divine on mountaintops. So, Nigel read earlier for us the story of Moses going up the mountain to meet God and receive the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them. If we had read on a little bit further, well, ten chapters further, which is why we didn't, but if we'd read on a little bit further in the book of Exodus, we would have heard that when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses the skin of his face was shining. And Moses would have to put the veil back on his face again until he went back to speak with God again. It seems that in some way, according to the Exodus story, Moses' encounter with God on the mountaintop changed his appearance. His face started shining. It changed something about the nature of his being. We might say that Moses was transfigured by his encounter with God on the mountaintop. But it's not just Moses on the mountain that lies behind Matthew's story of the transfiguration of Jesus. In Daniel's vision of heaven, he describes how thrones were set in place and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. The use of the color white here is very deliberate, and it's often used in the Bible to indicate righteousness. So, for example, in the book of Acts, we find the story of the ascension of Jesus into heaven, told in similar terms, with two angels in white robes, suddenly and mysteriously standing beside the disciples. Uh, Acts chapter 1. When he said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. And earlier in Matthew's Gospel itself, in chapter 13, we read a promise that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And Matthew's version of the resurrection story is told in similarly dramatic and apocalyptic tones. 
After the Sabbath, on the first day of the week, uh, as it was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And in the book of Revelation, we have several descriptions, both of the human divine figure called the Son of Man and those who follow him, all appearing to wear white, shining clothes, which indicate their righteousness. Just listen to these few sentences. <clears throat> his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his face was like shining sun with full force. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Around the throne are 24 elders, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, and dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude, no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white. These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. My point here is that Matthew is not writing in a vacuum. This story of the transfiguration of Jesus doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of a tradition within Judaism, which is present in the Old Testament, elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, and elsewhere in the New Testament. From Exodus to Daniel to the Jesus tradition to the apocalyptic literature, the story Matthew gives us of the transfiguration of Jesus is part of this wider literary tra tradition of humanity transfigured through encounter with the divine. Or to put it another way, when people meet with God, something profound and tangible changes within them. Now, don't hear me wrong here. I don't think that Jesus was or even is the next evolution of humanity. His transfiguration is not some kind of fusion of the physical with the spiritual, resulting in a, a mystical ability to exist on a higher plane than the rest of us mere mortals. Neither is the transfiguration of Jesus a mystical experience that we should seek to emulate in some quest for enlightenment or esoteric knowledge. Those ways lie heresy, I'm afraid. But nonetheless, I do think that there is a new humanity coming into being in Christ, and it is revealed at the transfiguration. Paul, I think, was onto this when he described Jesus as the new or second Adam. Listen to how he puts it in his letter to the Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through one man, Jesus Christ, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's Romans chapter 5. What Paul is doing there is he is placing Jesus 
in contrast with Adam, the symbolic first human from the book of Genesis. So humanity, according to the Genesis story, came into being through Adam. The new humanity, says Paul, comes into being through the new Adam, the son of man, the Messiah, who Matthew depicts as transfigured in the presence of his disciples on the mountaintop. But hear this and hear it very clearly. This is not about evolution. It's about transfiguration. The new humanity does not arise by natural forces red in tooth and claw from the redundant carcass of the old humanity. It does not outcompete its predecessor, nor does it vanquish it by might or right. Rather, the new humanity arises by grace and through love. It emerges in the midst of our sinful, fallen human state as a gift from God that transfigures our lives and our world. God in Christ is transfiguring humanity. A new way of being has come into being in Christ, and it has the capacity to utterly transform our way of being in the world. The clues are all there for us in Matthew's text, which, as we have seen, is rich with the resonance of ancient stories, telling of God's journey with humans from their very beginning to this crucial, decisive moment of transfiguration on the mountain. The mystical moment on the mountain occurs, we are told in the first verse of our story, on the sixth day. The echo of the creation story from Genesis is too strong to ignore here. According to the ancient myth, God created humanity on the sixth day before resting on the seventh. And in Matthew's story, the new humanity is brought into being on the sixth day. Then the transfigured Jesus is seen talking with Moses and Elijah, whose symbolic presence speak of the law and the prophets, fulfilled in the presence and person of the transfigured Son of Man. The whole of human history is here in this story, contained and completed in this moment. And the whole story of human attempts to encounter God is reflected in the glory shining from the face of Jesus, from creation itself to the first Adam to Elijah, the prince of prophets, to Moses, the giver of the law. It all comes down, for Matthew, to this one moment on the mountaintop with Jesus and his three disciples. Like the narrowest point in the egg timer of history, the past funnels into the future through this one moment of transfiguration. And so the new humanity is born. The second Adam is transfigured from base human flesh in the company of history and baffled disciples. And it's not about genetics. It's about inheritance, which is very different. It's about covenant, not country or tribe. And any nation, tribe, or people who claim exclusive or privileged access to the revelation of God in Christ are missing the point of the transfiguration. From God bless America 
to God save the queen, to one nation under Allah, God will not be so constrained. Because God's people are all people. They are humanity transfigured. And all we need to do to see it, to see our own place within it, is to open our eyes and look to the mountain and see the moment of glory in the face of Jesus. Paul's vision of Christ on the road to Damascus opened his eyes to the one who appeared to him as a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around him and his companions. And what Paul realized in this moment of his personal transfiguration, as his eyes were blinded to his old life and opened to his new one, was that God was not confined to one people, and that the call of God goes way beyond the chosen nation of the Jews to encompass all the nations of the Gentiles as well. And so Christianity as we know it was born as Paul set off on his journeys to change the world. And I think that brings us to today, to a gospel with no barriers, no exclusions, It brings us to the freely given love of God, extended to people of every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, of all genders, ethnicities, backgrounds and sexualities. This is the new humanity that comes into being in Christ. We're it. We are. We are the new humanity. And we don't worship a parochial God who exists to serve us and those like us. Neither do we follow a partisan God, who is defined over and against the wisdom of science. Honestly, I have had it with little Christianity. Me and my Christian mates, we're the only ones that are right, and the rest of the world is wrong and going to hell. Blow that for a game of soldiers. That's not what it's about. God is so much bigger than that. In Christ, God is revealed as so much bigger than that. The disciples didn't really get it. They decided they were going to try and build some little huts for Jesus and Moses and Elijah to live in. The human response to this vision of the whole of history coming down to this one person is, I know, let's build him a house so he can live with us, with his mates. We constantly take the big God and we make him into the little God, our God. The God who goes with us and stays with us and dwells with us and proves that we're right and everybody else is wrong. It's not what it's about. It's not about God of this nation or that nation or this people or that people or this denomination or that denomination or this religion or that religion. This is not God over creation. This is God in creation transforming it from within. This is not a philosophy of gradual, optimistic self-improvement. We don't become the new humanity by just kind of mutually encouraging ourselves by singing, I don't know, happy mantra songs or whatever it is that we have our tendency to do in our various Christian traditions. This is a gospel of radical transformation of humanity without which there is no hope. Because this is the transformation of the whole of humanity 
reflected in the glory of the transfiguration of the Son of Man. This is us. We are humanity transfigured, and so are they. And our task is to proclaim the truth that there is a much bigger, wiser, more gracious, more loving God than any of us have ever grasped. That is our calling, and it is our only hope. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we should live it. This is Christ transfigured for our sake. Let's lift our hearts in prayer to God. Lord, we come before you this morning and ask you to transfigure us. We ask you to morph us and challenge us and change us so that we might resemble Christ. Help us not to make you in our image. Stop us from putting you in a box. Keep our eyes, our hearts, and our minds open to the grandeur, to the glory to the unfathomable nature of you. Lead us, Christ, to break down borders, break down barriers, break down walls, and share your love. Lead us to those mountain tops where we can encounter you and dwell in your presence. And then lead us again back to the valleys, out to the people. Let our faces shine with you. In this world of freedom of speech and sound bites and anger and rights and fake news and fake fake news let us share a message of love that transfigures conversations Show us how to let go of power and reach out with love. To pick up compassion, responsibility, and wisdom. In this world of terror and fear, Spread your love and your peace. Let us be Christ 
to those around us. Let this church be Christ in the midst of this city. Lord, we lift up our leaders to you. Local authorities, national authorities. We ask for wisdom, for good stewardship. For an open ear. And for compassion. And help us to stand up and challenge... where those cries fall on deaf ears. Let this church be known for standing up for the least and for the broken and for the outsider. Let us not be self-serving. We think of those who have nowhere to sleep, nowhere to rest their heads, both in London and abroad. We lift up those who in every sense are homeless. Help us to know how to respond how to transfigure this world so that it resembles your kingdom. Lead us when we don't know what to say or what to do and we feel like we have no answers. And Lord, we lift up those close to us. Those that are struggling and suffering mentally, emotionally, and with health. Lord, we lift up Carol and Philip to you this morning and pray for your peace and your wholeness and your well-being. We pray for Margaret and her family. And we think of Florence. Lord, reach out your loving hand to those who feel frail today. We lift up other names that are on our heart to you now.
In silence, we lift up those places where we feel powerless. And with hope, we lift up our eyes and our hearts to you now and pray that you will continue to journey with us as you have done through all of our history. Amen. <laughs>